Um, the study for this morning has led me to uh, look at all of 2 Corinthians. And part of it is, is very poignant to anyone who ever uh, endeavors to share the gospel. Um, you, you could ask, um, why would anyone who has such a great message to tell about Jesus and the salvation that comes to us without any expense to us, that the great message of the gospel is a privilege to be shared. So why wouldn't everyone be very eager to preach or to, to be a teacher and a sharer of the gospel? And I think part of that, part of the hesitancy is described in some of Paul's words to the Corinthians um, as he, he talks about the glory. It's, it's uh, I think, in, in chapter 5, I think. Um, where he's talking about the glory of the first covenant and, excuse me, chapter 3, the glory of the first covenant where he's talking about this, the commandments in stone and he says that's a, a covenant that was for, for condemnation. He uses the word condemnation, but it still had a glory to it. But he says the glory of the new covenant is so much greater that the old covenant is is um, superseded by the new covenant. And that glory is seen in us. And, and he concludes that whole discourse in chapter 4 when he says, "Let uh, the God who said, let light shine of, out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as someone who's preaching the gospel I see that as an assignment. And so I have at least a glimpse of the glory that is in the word, that's in the scripture, that's in what we want to talk about this morning. And I realize that the difficulty I have in, in transferring that or in showing that, in giving you a picture of that glory and I realize how often I can get in the way for that. And I realize how many times there's so much there and just a little bit of it leaks through the voice of Mark. And I, I regret that. But I trust that as Paul said, and when he, he asked the question, who's sufficient for these things? And I asked the same question. I asked it lots of times this week. And I, and I come to the same answer. Our sufficiency is in Christ. And so, as we look at 2 Corinthians, the final chapter, I want to spend significant time following what I think is a thread through the letter. Um, it's a letter that's written to multiple audiences. The, there are devoted followers and, and sincere followers in Corinth who have accepted the authority of Paul and Timothy and the other apostles and have sought to embrace the gospel as presented and have followed that. And so that's part of the, part of the audience. But there are also some who are teachers of another gospel. There are false apostles who have somehow come into Corinth. He calls them, in sarcasm, he calls them super apostles. 
Um, and they, they presented a different Jesus, a different gospel, a, a different message than what Paul brought. And he was concerned about that. But among that audience then are those two groups, but then there's a third group, I think, that's maybe a little bit in between. They're not sure. They're not sure whether, I mean, there's something exciting about these super apostles. There's something exciting about their message. They, they look well put together. They speak with eloquence. So there's something attractive. And so he's speaking, I think, to all three of them. And sometimes the text kind of tells you which, one, which group he's speaking to. So he also addresses a diversity of subjects. Part of it is his defense of his apostleship. Part of it is his, his uh, clarity in expressing what the gospel really is. Don't be deceived. This is what the gospel really is. Part of it is his concern over the people. But through all of that, through jumping, I think jumping, or sometimes an abrupt change from who he's talking to and what he's talking about, I think we can see a thread. And I think that thread runs at least in the background all the way through it and it's the theme of power and weakness and, and he presents that of course they're a contrast they're intended to be a contrast power and weakness and, and we'll see it, I hope we'll see it uh, come out as we walk quickly through the letter and conclude with chapter 13 but there, there's a a deceptiveness or a mystery, let's say a mystery, a mystery to the truth of the conflict or the tension between power and weakness. And that mystery can be defined or can be described as what is strong often appears weak, and what is weak often appears strong. And we're, we're probably prone to, first of all, be attracted to what appears strong because it, it's just more desirable. And so um, walking through it quickly, I hope, um, in chapter 2, he talks about um, the, the, the challenge of being a minister, of being a, a proclaimer of the gospel, and of being the aroma of Christ— both to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. And then he asks, who is sufficient for these things? He's, he's expressing a genuine humility and a genuine understanding that he is not. He can't rely on himself. Paul the apostle, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the one who was so well studied and he would go through a list of all his credentials later on, he was not sufficient. He's admitting that. The rhetorical question implies that. I am not sufficient. So there's a weakness he's expressing right off the bat. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, he kind of answers that question. He says, but our, our sufficiency is in Christ, is from God. He says in chapter 3, verse, verse uh, 5, then in chapter 4, where in contrast to the others that had come who are self-promoting, and um, that's, that's probably something that leads to success in a lot of contexts, right? Um, if you want to, to sell a product and, and you say, well, I'm, I really don't know the product very well. It's, it's not really, I'm not sure it's very good. I'm not, you're not going to make a lot of sales, right? So you have to have a confidence 
in both yourself and in what you're doing or in what you're selling. You have to project that somehow to be able to win the confidence of the customer. But he's, he's saying we're not self-promoting. I'm not going to tell you about why I'm confident in myself. I'm actually going to I'm, I'm going to set myself aside. He's following the pattern of John the Baptist who says, when, when people said, you're prominent and you must be the prophet, you must be the Messiah. He says, no, 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 no. I am not what you're looking for. I must decrease and he must increase. So Paul is following that same doctrine or that same pattern that I will constantly diminish my importance but point to him because he's the one that matters. So he's, he's professing his own weakness again and pointing to the power of Christ. Then in uh, verse 7 of chapter 4, the, this is a great image. After he talks about the glorious light of the gospel, he talks about himself a little bit, just a little bit. He says, we have this treasure, the glorious light of the gospel. We have that treasure in jars of clay. He's, he's depicting himself as a, a mud that's, that's formed into a jar for, for use for the most menial things. It's not, it's not, a, it, it, it's not what you'd put in front of the company. It, it's a clay jar. And that's what he says he is. So that to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So there's a weakness in himself and a power in God. He's pointing to that. Chapter 5, he says, as he gives a, a very concise and accurate description of the gospel, which often occurs in the letters of Paul, that you want to look for that and you want to see how he, in the midst of dealing with maybe church problems or anything else that's going on, you'll, you'll find a, a, a song or um, what, what could be called a poem that is the central thought or the central motivation for everything else he's doing. And I, I would suggest that maybe we would find that in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, that is a beautiful synopsis of the gospel. It's, 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 it's a, a poetic even um, Rendering of it. It would be good for any of us to spend time memorizing it to, to see the, the depth that's in those verses. But I want to point to this. How, how is that appeal being made? This is Paul, the apostle. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
This is an appeal to the heart of the people. This is a weak approach in, in, a, in one way to, I, I, I wanna clarify that, okay. It, it does not force you to hear or to listen. It does not force you to comply with what is being said. You must consider it and choose. It is an appeal to you. It is not a demand of you. That's different. We can read about an, a, a, another incident in, in Acts. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Well, Saul became Paul. Consider the one approach. <laughs> Join or die. Join or be, be put in chains, or worse. Breathing out threatenings and murders against the people forcing them by power by an outward power an outward show of power don't you follow this you must go back to the 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 jewish law is what paul was promoting what saul was promoting but consider the 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 transition in his heart from the powerful demand to follow what he said or be thrown in jail and the appeal so the, the appeal of Christ, the appeal of Christianity, the appeal of us as his ministers, as his ambassadors, as it's described here, is in the weakness of seeking you to think about what the gospel says, what it presents. We want to appeal to your reason. We don't want to use the sword. I would repudiate any time in Christian history where the sword has been used to try to convert people. I know that those are parts, those are chapters in history, and I don't think that Christ was in them. I don't think, well, he was in every chapter, of course, but I don't think he was in those actions. I don't think it's ever his will that we would force somebody outwardly to comply to Christian ideals. If we do that, we're not changing anyone's heart. We're not... We're not making them into Christians. We're making them into compliant sinners. So it's a, it's a weakness in that sense that it appeals, it doesn't demand. In chapter 6, he talks about his experience and he says um, all of the, the things that he has undergone have been through this, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. He's, he's presenting constant contrasts of a picture of weakness and a picture of power. But the power is always concealed and the weakness is always, in the eyes of man, a, a, a source of dishonor, an image of dishonor. 
when, when he talked in chapter 7 about the conviction that came when he had written a previous letter to the Corinthians. He talked about their repentance, that they submitted to the counsel that he gave and they submitted ultimately to God, that in repentance, their, their godly sorrow, again, a weakness, brought about salvation. It brought the, the redemption. It brought the reunion of them with God. So it brought about the, the greatest benefit from a show of weakness. We, we don't seek to repent unless the Holy Spirit convicts us. And even then, we probably resisted. If you're like me, you resisted. You, we, we don't run to weep and bow before God in, in the sense of our own um, guilt before him. We have to be convinced of that by his Holy Spirit. In chapters 8 and 9, he goes into a pretty long discourse about generosity, about the, the collection that they're anticipating to, to gather from the Corinthians, and that it was something they had planned and they had actually promised. And so he said, let's not only plan it, let's not only say we're going to do it, but let's do it. But the, the issue of generosity versus an accumulation of wealth or a growth of our own uh, economic empire. Again, weakness versus power. He talks then about his um, apostolic authority, which was challenged constantly. And he, in, in, in chapters 10, 11, and 12, he's talking about how he's, he's brokenhearted over the possibility of the people he has taught the true gospel embracing a different gospel. We could almost see him as the image of a, of a father concerned over his family, over his children, because somebody who's younger, better looking, a better speaker, better, better dressed, more exciting in their message, more exciting in their activity, has come and is telling them not to listen to dad anymore. He's boring, he's old, he's no fun, What's the excitement in what he has to say? And look at what I can offer. You could almost see that image in a, in a, a drug dealer coming into the neighborhood. He's going to be driving a fancy car, and he's going to be dressed in sharp clothes, and he's going to present something that sounds exciting. But we all can see the devastation of embracing what he would offer. That's, that's what Paul is feeling. Um, and he's brokenhearted over it, and he, and he pleads with them not to accept or embrace something that looks good, that looks strong, that looks powerful. <clears throat> and he goes into what's probably the most personal part of the letter as he talks about uh, his own experience of weakness. Um, and it, it's a challenge to anyone who thinks that those who are most spiritual can actually dictate to God what he will do and what miracles he will perform. But think about this, as the Apostle Paul said, three times he pleaded with the Lord to remove a thorn in the flesh, a thorn from his flesh. So many people have discussed what that would have been. I think it's deliberate of God not to tell us, of Paul not to tell us, and, of, and by that, God not giving 
Paul the instructions to tell us what the thorn is. Because we all have thorns, right? They could be people. They could be health issues. They could be a financial issue. They could be relational. They could be our job. They could be something else. We all have thorns. Life is, is filled with them. And they might be what Paul had. They might not. They could be temptations. They could be uh, our, our tendency, our weaknesses to, to be drawn to an addiction. They could be any of those things. We don't know what it is. So he begged the Lord three times, and the Lord's answer was very, very clear. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's conclusion I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to use my power as an apostle to make sure God does what I want. No, he doesn't say that. We all know. He says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he comes to chapter 13. And, uh, of course, that's a long introduction, right? But we'll read chapter 13 and spend a little more time on some details in that. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of peace and love, uh, the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I, I think we could say a crescendo is building on the topic of 
power and weakness that culminates in chapter 13 as he says the the greatest example of weakness that was actually more powerful than anyone imagined was displayed in the crucifixion of Jesus and in his resurrection um, that picture because it's so familiar to us sometimes loses its impact and sadly so I think if none of us had ever heard the gospel and then we saw that or we heard that story, we read that story, we would be impacted more than we are after we've heard it a thousand times. But I, I hope this is helpful for you. This, this was amazingly helpful for me. As uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a series of books for children called The Chronicles of Narnia, in the one that's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he gives an image of the weakness of one being sacrificed for another. The, the background of the story is that there are four children in a family, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. And they go to the fictional place of Narnia. But Edmund is, is a mischievous boy. And he is drawn under the influence of the witch, who because of his disobedience to Aslan the lion, becomes her possession. And so the three siblings that know that he is captive to the witch are worried about him, and they see that Aslan negotiates with the witch something. They see it in the distance, and they don't know what's being said, but there is an agreement made, and they don't know what it is. But then as the story progresses, Aslan is submitting to being the captive of the witch. And this is how it's told by C.S. Lewis. I hope this just whets your appetite. I hope you read all that you can of C.S. Lewis. I, I, I would tell you to do that if, if you have time. But as Aslan is approaching the, the place of execution, which is a stone table, this is how it's described. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing toward them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she herself gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. It's, I don't pretend that this is scripture, but it, it gives us an image of the silence of the Lamb of God before his accusers. The power that was restrained, Aslan the lion could have in one moment destroyed his enemies. Yet, in the apparent weakness of the moment, he submitted. He submitted to the ultimate plan of the redemption of Edmund. I, I, I tried to tell this story to Sandy and I couldn't get through it. And she says, you better not use that as an illustration. And the reason it's so emotional to me is because I'm Edmund. That, that's my story. Is it, is it your story? 
if you look at that story, it's one way to answer the question where he says, examine yourself and see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. So, I have to examine myself. I don't like to examine myself. Even this morning when I got up and I, I had this, this verse on my mind, I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh man, a lot of work needed there. And that's just the outside. That's just what you can see in the mirror. It's much worse if you get inside. But the counsel is examine yourself. I can't examine you. And you can't examine me. And beyond that, I can't even examine myself except that the Holy Spirit is at work to convict me and show me what's there. Examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. Put myself to the test. I would think that the super apostles may have missed that part from their gospel, that part about self-examination, that part about putting yourself to the test, the part about repentance, the part about I have to come as a rebel to a holy God and I have to come bankrupt and I can't say that I come because I'm strong, because I'm righteous, because I'm good. I have nothing to bring. I am Edmund, captured by the witch. And I need intervention. I need the greatest intervention. I need God to die on my behalf so that a righteous, a, a righteous payment is made for my sin. That is the most humbling experience that I think we can ever have is to say, I have nothing to bring. A false gospel says, oh, come and, and earn your way. D do good things. D if, if you just do more good than bad, you're going to be fine. You just have to, you know, try a little bit harder. Not only is it a lie, but it's depressing, isn't it? If you really look at yourself, do you think that's going to work? You really think that you're going to be able to clean up the inside of your life, the inside of your heart, so that you're going to be acceptable to God? That, that lie should, should really strike us as something from hell and from the devil himself because we know better, right? So when I look at that and I see who I am and I see my need, then I really have to go back to that, that part of the gospel that, or that part of the letter where Paul articulates the gospel where he says, be reconciled to God. How do I do that? Well, I, I could say, well, there's, we, we should pray the sinner's prayer. Well, there are some, some sinner's prayers in the Bible. One of them is Psalm 51. The sinner's name is David. And he begins it, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. But I've used up too much time in my recap of the first part of, of 2 Corinthians, so we're going to go to the short sinner's prayer. And it's found in Luke chapter 18. 
he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, remember this, the sinner's prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, the counsel of Paul to the Corinthians and to all of us is to examine ourselves. There's no, no good pretending. There's, there's a foolishness to our pretending. It's the ultimate foolishness in this case because it's the ultimate consequence in this case. Do I have Christ? John, in his letter, his first letter, said, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's, it's a serious matter to lie to our doctor about the symptoms of what's going on inside of us. And it's a bad idea. But infinitely worse to lie to ourself and the God who desires to save us that everything's okay inside. I passed the test. The only way I pass the test is if I come by the only means he has given through the Son and his redemptive work. So I come empty, bankrupt, and, and without any moral right to be there, without any merit. And I accept it only because he said it is true, not because there's any evidence of goodness in me, only because he, the God who made me, has said it is true. If you come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. I will not. So just come. Just come. I have to believe that in this audience or, or watching online, there's a mix of people just like the people in Corinth. There's some who already sincerely follow the Lord. There's some who think they can, they can come up with another gospel. And there's some who are caught in the middle. But let's look inside ourselves. Let's let him shine the light inside of us, rather. Let the Holy Spirit do that. 
And if he comes to, to convict us, let's be thankful for another promise that Paul articulated. He said, as he's quoting from Isaiah, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. It's not too late. This is good news if we discover sin in our heart today because it's the day of salvation. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gospel is for the weak. We thank you that it is for those who are bankrupt. We thank you that it is for those who are poor, for those who are needy, because we are all of that. We thank you that our righteousness cannot and is not the means to get to you because our heart tells us we could never be righteous. We could never be clean. We could never be clean enough for a God who would make a heaven that we want to be in. We pray, Lord, for every heart here that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our life, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring the, the grace of conviction to us so that we honestly see ourselves, we honestly examine ourselves, and if we are not yours, that we will not delay, but that we will embrace what you have offered, for now is the day of salvation. Lord, thank you for your word and for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.